and we are going to pick up where we left off a few weeks back. Um, appreciate those who prayed for us while we were at the meeting up in South Carolina, and Brother Stephen, appreciate him teaching, preaching for me while I was out. Um, and then if you weren't here Wednesday, you missed Roberto preaching Wednesday night. And uh, look, that's a rare thing, not for Roberto to preach, but it's a rare thing for me to not be in the pulpit. <laughs> and so uh, you had your chance Here's someone other than me uh, with Roberto preaching and then as well uh, with Brother Stephen, Brother Roberto both filling in. I'm thankful for that and for these men that the Lord has provided us to do such. I'm very grateful and I mean that sincerely. I'm very grateful for that. Let's just read actually two verses this morning is probably all we're going to get through in Colossians chapter 1. Of course, I'll give you a review, especially since it's been two weeks now since I've been here. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 is where we'll pick up our reading. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray together again. Father, we pause these moments as we open your word. We are honored be able to have your word within our hands, to be able to read your word, to be able to study your truth. And Father, as we will now proclaim that which you have given us through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, I pray that we might have understanding, even as the scripture states, and that your spirit will provide us the discernment that is necessary to not only understand and to know, but as well to live in the truth of that which you declare. Thank you for these who've gathered with us this day. We do pray that every heart Every individual might be edified through the fellowship we share with one another as we have sung praise now to your name and now as well as we open the word of God for the time of proclaiming your truth. May your spirit use the truth of your word in every heart and life, including my own. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to study your word. And I thank you for how you minister to us through the word of God by the working of your Holy Spirit. And so we want to be careful, Father, as we approach the word to do so with reverence, Lord, and may you find every every thought to be captive to Christ, and may the very words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. During our last study of this text, we began to examine Paul's prayer. Um, after several weeks of working up to this point, these verses which we are in uh, this morning, and although Paul was in prison, if you remember, this is one of the four prison epistles which Paul had written. And that being so, he was in prison, of course, as he wrote this epistle. And even though he were, was in prison, we noticed in his prayer, as is Paul's custom to do, Paul had a signature style of writing. And you find that in his epistles, he would have an introduction. He would introduce himself, as a, usually as an apostle, a prisoner, a slave of Jesus Christ. Then he would also, as well, address those to whom he was writing. And then he, as well, would then give thanks for them and, and mention a prayer that he was praying for them uh, on their behalf to the Father. And so this is exactly what we find in this portion of the text as Paul introduces this to us uh, This in this portion we read, we've read this morning. And so, though Paul were in prison, it's interesting for us to note, I believe, and it's worthy of our consideration, that Paul committed himself to pray for what he knew to be God's will, rather than just praying randomly or requesting that which may or may not be God's will. 
And it, that which he knew to be God's will was the spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of the church at Colossae. In fact, that being true of all the churches. And so as Paul begins this prayer, it's interesting because though Paul, I'm, surely, I'm sure that we would find that if we knew all the prayers of Paul, that we would find him praying for himself at some point. And Lord, you, you know my situation. You know where I'm at. You know I'm in prison. You know that I feel hindered being in prison. But let me remind you of something. Had Paul not been in prison during this time, we probably would not have these epistles that were written while he were in prison, and Paul would have been ministering to these churches probably in person, which he had never met the church at Colossae in person. And so though Paul may have felt hindered at the moment, and he may have felt as though things were working against him, from a physical perspective, I'm saying possibly, the reality is he acknowledged that all this was to God's glory for God's purposes to be fulfilled, and he knew that God would use him as he so chose to do, as he would submit himself to the Lord regardless of where he was, regardless of what the circumstances were concerning where he was. And so we see that Paul did not pray for God to deliver him from prison in the recorded prayer that we have, which may or may not have been And obviously at this time it was not God's will. But he did commit himself to pray for that which he knew was God's will, which was for these believers at Colossae to grow and be rooted and grounded and not detoured and not distracted from Christ. And so Paul is committed to this in his prayer. We observe from Paul's prayer beginning in verse 3, we give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul prayed with thankfulness, we saw. He begins by saying, we give thanks, which is not uncommon for Paul to do. Verse 4 goes on to explain the reason that he gave his thanks to the Lord. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. Then second, we looked at Paul, the fact that Paul faithfully prayed and praying always for you, he says, again in verse 3. Paul knew, of course, that spiritual growth was necessary for the church to be spiritually fruitful in godliness and, in, and to be spiritually strong. So he prayed continually for this spiritual growth and he understood it to be a lifelong process that would, that, and, and recognize there's always room for a need as well to increase in the knowledge of God. Uh, remember, we, we must be mindful of this truth that we can thankfully say, as Paul did even in Philippians, can we not, that basically he states that I am not what I once was and I'm not yet what I desire to be. But yet I thank God that he has put me where I am and done for me what he has done, and I strive towards that which he has purposed for me to be, which is conformed to the image of Christ, ultimately. Verse 10, Paul said that ye might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we concluded our previous study a few weeks back by explaining that Paul's prayer was one which he prayed with purpose. Paul's focus of his prayer was not for his own physical well-being, but was rather, again, focused on the spiritual well-being of the church. Might I say to you, we, would, we all would be much better off if we would take note of that which Paul is committed to praying for and follow suit. The reality is that it's not wrong for us to pray for physical needs. We're commanded to give our petitions and lay our cares upon the Lord. And I'm so thankful that God is there as my Heavenly Father and that through Jesus Christ I can come boldly unto the throne of grace knowing that there is grace to help in time of need, knowing that I have a great high priest, knowing that there's nothing that affects me that he cannot identify with because he came and lived in the flesh. What a joy that is. There isn't that. At the same time, isn't it interesting 
how much time again that we spend praying, or what we call praying, for things that are uncertain or for things that are self-centered or selfishly praying, rather than submitting ourselves to the will of God and saying again, as we've said before, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done, and us aligning with his will instead of attempting to continually get God to align with ours, which is a, which is a useless point. Look, God will never move to where you are changing his purpose and will and plan, but I'll tell you what he will do through prayer. If you are submitted, truly praying, he will submit you under his will and his plan, just as he did with the Lord, as the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated for us in his in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, an interesting note here, and I, I've made this statement before, and someone reminded me of it by something they said this past week, that when Jesus was on the cross, if you recall with me, uh, of the seven sayings that were made on the cross, the one he once said, he, he said, I thirst, and they offered him, remember the vinegar and such, and were, which would have, have not, of course, quenched his thirst, but it would have, have been somewhat soothing under the situation or what have you, but yet, nonetheless, you find that Jesus claims I thirst. But do you remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nonetheless, not my will but thine be done. There's submission. And in that submission, then on the cross, at the point of his death, when he gives up the ghost, prior, just prior to that, he states, I thirst. I thirst. Which is an interesting statement. So the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ and his high priestly prayer, all of the prayers we see recorded of the Lord Jesus, he is submitting himself to the will of the Father. He is always in the will of the Father. And so we saw that Paul prayed, of course, with purpose. And as I mentioned, we dealt with this a little bit uh, a few weeks back, but really didn't dive into it too much uh, due to the sake of time. And so Paul's, again, focus of this prayer, we note, was not that of a physical sense, but rather that of the spiritual well-being of the church. Now, we're also reminded by this that prayer, and more specifically supplication, often throughout the epistles you'll find where it speaks of prayer and supplication. Well, what is supplication? It's prayer. But yet supplication is distinctly uh, separate from prayer in the sense that it is that which is prayed for others, not for oneself. And so when you find prayer and supplication, there is obviously to pray, and we need to pray for ourselves and that God work and continue to align us with his will. But supplication is when we are praying for others, and that's what Paul is doing here. This is a prayer of supplication on behalf of the church at Colossae. And so supplication, obviously, as with all other prayer, is not intended to be used for selfish purposes or gain, but is provided by God as a means in which we submit ourselves to God and focus on his will being accomplished in our lives and in all things. So this morning, we are continuing again our examination of verses 9 and 10. And within these verses, we further discover again that Paul prayed with purpose. So let's look at the reason Paul prayed. Look at verse 9 with me. For this cause we also... So he's saying what? This is the reason. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, he's not yet gotten to the reason. He's already mentioned a few things, but he's not really gotten to the reason. We'll see in a moment. But he's saying there is a reason for which I am praying for you. Now, within Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae, Paul makes requests on behalf of the Colossian believers and, and, and provides also an explanation as to the reason for the requests, and he also emphasizes the results produced by such requests when answered by God. Paul's prayer for this church was a faithful prayer devoted to the same cause or reason. Paul was not simply remembering this church in his thoughts, 
But more importantly, he was focused in or zeroed in on them since the moment he heard of their faith in Christ, as Paul already stated in verses 3 and 4. If you look back with me, he said, We give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. Now, while in verses 3 and 4, Paul is praying continually, he says, praying always for you. To the Heavenly Father, he is praying continually, since he had heard of the Colossian believers' faith in Christ, and which produced and resulted in a love for all the saints, because now they possess the love of God. First John deals with that very clearly in John's Gospel. John, Jesus says, of course, uh, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you have loved one to another. First John talks about you love God whom you've not seen while not loving your brother whom you do see. So he's saying that same love of Christ will flow through us towards others. And that's the result of their faith in Christ. The faith that they had in Christ in salvation in the new birth produced through them and in them a love for God the Father first and the Lord Jesus and a love for others of the family of God specifically. And so Paul says we gave thanks and we give thanks continually for this reason. But Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11, or what he mentions here, is a prayer for the continual spiritual growth of this church. And what's interesting about what is recorded in this passage concerning Paul's prayer is that in both Paul's thanks to God for the church and his request for the spiritual growth and maturity of the Colossian church, the scripture states, again, verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then verse 9, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to, to desire that ye be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul prayed for the continued spiritual growth of the church as faithfully as he also prayed in thanksgiving for the church at Colossae. Paul expressed this in the remaining portion of verse 9. He goes on to say, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is important to note where Paul makes such a statement. The verb desire that is used here when he says, and to desire. So he's saying we, we cease not to pray for you and to desire, and it means to ask. So he's saying this is something I'm asking. He's not merely saying this is something I want. But he is saying, this is that which I am asking on your behalf, requesting before God on your part. The question which then must be answered when we think of this desire is for what did Paul ask the Lord? And then he specifies, he gives specifics here on what it is that he asked. Paul asked to fill these believers at Colossae with the knowledge of God's will, God's wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Now, this was a prayer for their illumination to God's revelation. Remember, God had already revealed Jesus Christ, and now the gospel is being proclaimed. The scriptures are still being written. The New Testament is still being written at this time, obviously, as we see even in this letter. But yet, God has already revealed Christ, and he's already revealed his truth. He's already revealed the gospel. And throughout Paul's other epistles, you'll find that Paul speaks often of the mystery of and the mystery of which he speaks specifically is the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's saying that God has revealed and made known this mystery which was hidden from ages past, which he goes on to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this is that mystery to the Gentiles. And so here, this has already been revealed, and now God is illuminating. I've said this to you many times before, but let me remind you of this. 
I do not believe we should ever be praying for God to reveal to us any of his truth. We should be praying that God illuminate our minds to his revealed truth. The word of God is the revealed truth of God. God has spoken, and he spoke, Hebrews chapter 1 makes this so, so clear. God has spoken, and he has ultimately spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the word of God, we have what God has had to say. And the problem is, as with his disciples, if you recall, just a side note, with the disciples in John 14, if you remember, Jesus had said in John 13, I'm going to go and I'll, I'm going to, uh, you cannot follow me. And Peter says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you, you go. I'll follow you to the death. And the Lord then rebukes Peter immediately and says, Peter, will you really die for me? He says, the cock, or before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, thrice, right? And the next words, by the way, never connect this, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And then they, uh, Thomas is like, Lord, uh, how, how can we follow you when we don't know the way? And he says, you do know the way. You've been with me. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Hey, Lord, we'll be satisfied if you just show us the Father. And Jesus then says, Philip, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the whole point being, they wanted something more. It was always something more. And the same is true concerning the revelation God has given us today. People are always searching for something more. I've often asked this question, I'll say it again. Uh, when will Jesus be enough? <laughs> Let me tell you when Jesus is enough. He's enough when you're standing before God at the judgment seat of Christ, and it is Christ who is your redemption. He'll be enough then. He's enough now. That's the point. But people are always seeking and searching for something other, something more than, which is foolishness and ignorance. And so we find the same to be true with the Word of God. With the Word of God, people are always looking for some, some extra-biblical revelation. No, we need to simply pray. Remember, here, here's what I'm saying to you, just to, to simplify it quickly. The problem is not that God has not spoken. And the problem is not with what God has spoken. The problem is that men have blinded eyes, deaf ears, and indifferent hearts. That's the issue. So why are we praying for revelation? No, we need to be praying for illumination. Lord, where my ears are deaf, help me hear. Where my eyes are blind, help me see. And where my heart is cold or indifferent towards you and your truth, soften it and open it to your truth. So we see then that this is Paul's prayer, that they be, have illumination to God's revelation, that, that there would be, they would be filled with the knowledge of His will and have His wisdom and spiritual understanding. As I previously mentioned, the Colossian believers, historically speaking, were in a culture in which Gnosticism was beginning to develop and had begun to infiltrate the church. There are commentators who believe, as it would appear to be true, that Paul's letter to the Colossian church reflects the Gnostic environment of the day, or that which was becoming. In other words, while most of Paul's epistles, if you think about this, most of Paul's epistles, as well as with Simon Peter, refer to the knowledge of God. Yet in this particular epistle, Paul refers to them, the church, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this, of course, we understand, will never, knowledge of God's will will never be realized apart from knowing God himself. Yet... The distinction between the two statements is still interesting, considering the conditions surrounding the audience to whom Paul was writing. Now, while the church was being inundated by the claims, remember Gnosticism, uh, several ways to define it, as I said, several definitions that apply to it, but yet the claims 
uh, that were being made, of course, included that there was a need for some mystical knowledge, some mystical, again, revelation. And Paul asked the Lord to fill them, however, the church at Colossae, with the knowledge of His, of God's will. The verb phrase, might be filled, is in the passive voice. And that's interesting as well, because that, of course, means that action is being taken upon the subject rather than the subject performing the action. And it, it being in the passive voice, we see again that that means it's at, that those who are being spoken of are acted upon. Uh, Richard Millett commented, he said, the human responsibility is to place oneself in an environment conducive to spiritual growth where God can reveal his mind. Now here's the point. Those who are believers, and the church of Colossus were believers, they're Colossians believers, and what he is saying, what Millick is stating is that it is the responsibility of the believers to make certain that they are in a position, remaining in a condition and position in which it's conducive to spiritual growth. Again, I say to you, wherever you attend, whoever may be listening, you and anyone else who may be listening, wherever you may attend a, a, con- a fellowship of, of believers in Jesus Christ, you should be edified, you should be edifying, and you should be spiritually maturing and growing, not just attending performances and entertainments of, of mankind. Look, you shouldn't just come to hear even preaching. You should come to engage in the teaching of God's Word. Actively yourself, in your own mind and heart. Paul acknowledged, this being a passive voice verb phrase, Paul acknowledged that it was God who was the source of their knowledge, God who was the source of their wisdom, and God who was the source of their spiritual understanding. However, here's what else Paul acknowledged. That God had provided for them in His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and had gifted the church with apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for this very purpose. Ephesians, Paul deals with that. Paul asked, God to fill them in three ways. And I've mentioned these. We've seen them in the text. Now let's work through them for the remaining of our time this morning. The knowledge of God's will. The phrase knowledge of His will infers a recognition of God's will. The writer of Hebrews concludes the letter in a similar manner. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews recognizes this, obviously, saying, may He, the great shepherd of your souls, make you perfect, make you mature, make you whole, and He's saying in every good work, why? To do His will. I've told you before, when you see uh, the adjective good used in this context, you might as well understand it to mean godly. Because man has no good in him, man can do no good. So when it says good works, it's not about your good works that you perform, that you initiate. No, it's talking about God's works in you. Again, I remind you of Philippians 2, 12, and 13, which should be fresh on your minds, being it was only, I don't know, a year ago that we were in Philippians 2. <laughs> and in Philippians, if you recall with me, Philippians 2.12 says, the latter, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then verse 13 explains what that means. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, again, not work toward, not work for, not work on. We work out that which God has worked in, and that means his spirit is doing that work in and through us to his good 
pleasure, which Paul as well refers to in later portions here of this text. Second, not only the knowledge of God's will. So understand this again. Let me reemphasize this so that you are emphasize this again so that you understand the importance. Knowledge of God's will simply infers a recognition of God's will. And this is very important. Let, let me ask you this question. And I'm not talking about some mystical thing. We're not Gnostics, okay? We're not looking for mystical answers. And people, by the way, I would dare say, uh, side note again, <laughs> that many today within the church, they act as Gnostics in some ways. Even when it comes, especially coming, when it comes to the will of God. Oh, I've, listen, uh, bottom line, if you have been redeemed for any length of time and you are sitting here 30 years later going, I'm still looking for God's will for my life, you have a real spiritual problem. A serious spiritual problem. So a knowledge of God's will, I say all that to say this, have you ever known something, and I don't mean some random mystical situation, we're not talking about it, I'm talking reality. Have you ever known something to be the will of God? Yes? Have you ever known something to be the will of God and yet you not submit to the will of God? Yes? Have you ever known something to be the will of God, not submitted to the will of God, therefore not acted on the will of God? Yes? Here's my point. Recognition or understanding in that capacity of God's will does not produce spiritual maturity or spiritual fruit. That is important for you to understand. You need to know. But there's much more to this than knowing alone. Then he moves to wisdom. Ah, I wonder why he says this. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines wisdom as such. The right use or exercise of knowledge. So what is knowledge? Knowledge is a recognition. Wisdom is exercising that which you understand or know. It has been said before, as you've heard, I'm sure, knowledge is power. However, knowledge that is not applied or put to use produces a petri dish for pride to develop and overtake one's life. Hear what I'm saying to you, please. Knowledge is good, but knowledge can be dangerous if it's only knowledge. How do we know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul stated this, if you recall, knowledge puffeth up. Now, Paul said, we all have knowledge. Prior to that statement, that's only part of the verse. Prior to that statement, Paul said, we all have knowledge. But then he said, knowledge puffeth up. What is he saying? He's saying, knowledge by itself is going to make you proud. Knowledge by itself is going to feed your pride. There are people who know a lot of things, even spiritually. There are people who boast in what they know spiritually or religiously or biblically, we might say. People who know many academic truths biblically. And there are believers who know many truths. I've, I've known people, I'll give you a quick example. I've known people in my life, I can think of one person in particular, who seemed, seemed to be a zealot concerning what he knew. And I believe this man, I do believe this man knows the Lord, and I think I've seen fruit in his life uh, even since this time. But he was like a zealot concerning knowledge, but his life was so opposite of what he knew. And, and even in the workplace, he was mocked, not because of righteousness, he was mocked because of all the 
all the statements and all the things he would say, and yet his life was so similar to all those who he was working with at the time, who knew not the Lord. Now, I believe the Lord's worked in this man's life, and I believe that he is a believer. I really do. But the point I'm making is that you can have all this knowledge, and it just feeds your pride. Wisdom, however, is another story. What does Scripture tell us about wisdom? It's talking about godly wisdom. Proverbs speaks this multiple times. The fear of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to say all right, because I don't know what you said. (laughs) But I'll say it for you in case you don't know. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Reverence to God. And here's the thing. If you reverence God, that's not saying if if you speak reverence toward God. What is reverence of God? Think about this. Let's work this out for just a moment. What is reverence of God? Or reverence for God? Submission. You know why it's submission? Because you're recognizing he alone is worthy of your worship. He alone is worthy of your submission. He is worthy of your life. Is it Christ alone who is worthy? Of course it is. And the fear of the Lord, it's understanding and then acknowledging and then submitting to who God is and his worth that is the beginning of wisdom. If we know God is and we know that God is good, and we know that God is holy, He is sanctified unto Himself. If we know this, and yet, all we do is recognize that, that is not wisdom. The wisdom comes in submission, submitting ourselves to that truth that we know. Then 30 says spiritual understanding. Now, the term spiritual understanding implies insight. God alone is the source of knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. We must trust Him to provide us insight to His will and His truth. However, as we, who are God's people, are required to, we are required by God to appropriate God's provision for us. So God has not held anything from us that is necessary for our spiritual growth and knowledge of His will. Look, that is both a wonderful, blessed thought, and yet it can also be a very sad thought in this regard. You will follow as closely to Jesus and you will know Christ as much as you desire to. You cannot say anything hinders you other than you. As a believer, we're talking about, not unbelievers, believers. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you will follow as close to the Lord Jesus as you desire. You will. Think about the disciples. John was the beloved disciple, a beloved apostle, right? Think about Peter, James, and John. Those three who went with Jesus further along than some of the others. You follow Christ as closely as you desire. You will know as much of him as you desire to know of him. Because God's not holding back from his children the revelation he has given. It's we are blinded and we are still deaf and we are still indifferent in times and and, in areas concerning the revealed Christ. And we must be aware of that, that we might grow in this knowledge of him. There's always room, as we see even in the text, for our continued growth. So God has provided us his word. Again, I, I say to you, 
at the sake of sounding ridiculous, but yet you see it on news stations and such, people will go bonkers over finding what they think to be a figure of Jesus in their cornflakes. Seriously. I mean, oh, look, and take pictures and video because it's this image that they think looks like Jesus and it's in their morning breakfast cereal. Which is ridiculous, right? And then how many religious people or how many even believers look for Jesus in all kinds of places and they never go to where God has revealed him? Where has God revealed him? In his word. Is it important to read the word of God? Of course it is. But let me say to you again, Do not be content in just reading Scripture. You are to diligently apply yourself to Scripture. You will not really get to know who Christ is just by reading Scripture alone. Though you'll see Him, but you won't get to really know Him in the depths of who He is and what He has accomplished until you begin to apply your life to the Word of God. God has provided us all this in His Word. He has given us He's shown us his will, he's given us his wisdom, and spiritual understanding. In 2 Peter 1, 2-4, Peter said, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is very important. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. How? Through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that hath called us in virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Uh, How do we know those great and precious promises? Anyone? His word. He's given us great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. While time will prevent us from concluding our study of this portion of Paul's prayer today, we'll continue, Lord willing, next week. However, as we conclude our study today, I do believe it's important for us to consider this truth in verse 10, which explains Paul's reason God made such provision of his word, his wisdom, and spiritual understanding. So let's go back to verse 9, and then let's look at verse 10 again, just briefly. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, Do not cease to pray for you and to desire to ask that ye might be filled with the knowledge, God filling you with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Then verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice he says that ye, and remember when you see this used in this context, it's so that. I'm praying this so that ye might walk worthy of the Lord be fruitful, and increase in the knowledge of God. So it's only through knowledge of God's word, wisdom, which is applying godly knowledge, and spiritual understanding that we can live our lives in a pleasing manner unto the Lord. That's what he's saying here. The only way that you will live a life pleasing unto the Lord is that first you recognize God's will, you submit to God's will, recognizing God alone is worthy of your submission, which is genuinely defined in Scripture as worship multiple times. And then... Have the spiritual understanding that you live a life which is therefore pleasing unto the Lord. Furthermore, spiritual understanding or spiritual insight is not only understanding what God's will is, but it is also insight provided by God 
as we experience life according to his will. Think of what I'm saying here for a moment. Spiritual understanding is not only what is necessary for us to understand his will, but is it not true as we submit to God's will, not just recognize his will, but as we submit to God's will, we then through experience, not that experience trumps truth, understand what I'm saying, but we do experience and God provides an understanding then of his will that we did not possess before in many cases. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. There are things that I have experienced personally, you have as well, I'm sure, but there are things I've experienced personally in my life, which at the moment going through them, I really did not understand. And this was God's will, obviously, but I didn't understand it. But I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) I do not understand what you're doing. But in obedience and submission to God, there came a point in time where I may not have full understanding, but I begin to have spiritual understanding of what God was actually accomplishing as his will was being perfected in my life. So spiritual understanding is not only necessary to live in God's will, but as you live in God's will through recognition and wisdom, submission, acknowledging God's sovereign and he is worthy to be submitted to, then there are times that God also provides spiritual understanding and gives us insight, because that's what it means, insight. He begins to give us a little insight into what he is doing. Does he have to do that? No. Is he obligated to do that? No. But I will say to you, it is a joy when he does that. And he begins to give some insight into what he's accomplishing. In other words, it is through godly wisdom, which is to apply God's godly knowledge, that we also have this insight given to us by God, godly insight. So I would say to you, as Paul did to the church at Colossae, as we've looked at in verse 9, and as well, just read verse 10 and briefly looked at it for a moment, which we'll come back to, Lord willing. May we walk worthy of the Lord. Meaning this, you say, worthy of the Lord, how can I be worthy? No, it's not saying you become worthy of what's been done for you. That's not what's being said here. Paul is saying that you might walk, that you might live according to the provision and power of the Christ who not only died for us, but who also lives in us. I can never become worthy of the sacrifice that the Father made on my behalf. I can never become worthy of the life of Christ in me, but I can live according to the provision of his death and the provision of his resurrected life. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, so can you. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you this morning.